reading today is taken from Matthew um, chapter 26, verses 31 to 46, and that can be found on page 996 in the Bibles which are under the chairs in front of you. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell to his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Well, hello there again. Great to be with you all. Hey, um, before we begin, uh, I really do want to encourage the men of our church to come along to that men's ministry night on the 1st of April. Uh, I think as uh, Aussie men, it's a great temptation to pretend that we have no fear, um, but we all live in fear. And uh, it'd be great to hear Dominic's story of somebody who's been in prison. And uh, I've had a friend in prison, and that sounds like a place to be fearful of. So uh, join us on that night. And wives, if you could do whatever you could to encourage your husband to come along, uh, that would be terrific as well. I'm going to pray. We'll get straight to work. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, these words to us in uh, Matthew's Gospel. Pray as we consider them now that you might speak to us through them and that we might be the better for hearing them, uh, not just because we've heard information, but because it's led to transformation in our lives, that we might be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, when it comes to uh, life, when it comes to the Christian life, most of us have a natural bias one way or the other. Uh, we, in, in terms of how involved we think God is in everything that happens. At one extreme, on that continuum, God determines everything in a very kind of fixed way. All good, Anthony? Actually, let's thank Anthony. He is a dude. Uh, you've forgotten everything I just said, though, haven't you? <laughs> okay, uh, at one end of the spectrum, <laughs> you might think God determines everything in so fixed a way that we're really puppets dangling on his string, dancing to his tune, automatons, robots. Now, even if we don't find ourselves at the very extreme end, those of us with a natural bent towards there might say things like, oh, look, it all happens for a reason. What we do doesn't make much difference anyway. It's all up to God. And those things might be true, but sometimes we say them in a way that sounds almost fatalistic. 
what will be will be. It's just the way it is. It's a bit of um, kind of Aussie cynicism mixed in with British stiff upper lip. And it sounds like you just sort of have to passively accept everything as inevitable. Stoic, resigned, pessimistic. That's one end of the scale. I wonder if you're up that end. At the other uh, extreme, it's all up to us. Uh, Back here, it sounds like God has determined everything in so fixed a way that if we sin, it's because God really wanted you to sin. But you see, at this end of the continuum, it sounds like it's all up to you. It's not that God took the initiative in your salvation. You chose God. Uh, Our actions aren't fixed in any way. We are absolutely captains of our own destinies. We can do whatever we want. If we just dream big, follow our hearts, put our minds to it, work really hard. At this end of the continuum, God, well, he's a pretty distant player, to be honest. And it's really our actions, our decisions, our choices, not God's, that will determine the future. It's a bit of a mix of Aussie optimism and American can-do spirit, where we really think we can change the world. We naturally tend towards one of those two extremes just in Christian life and in our daily life, which is your natural bent. Because what's interesting in the section of Matthew's Gospel that we're looking at today is that we see both sides of the equation at play in the last day of Jesus' life. On the one hand, there is the resolute plan of God, anticipated in the Old Testament hundreds of years earlier. And on the other hand, we do see Jesus humanly wrestle and struggle as he chooses to obey this plan which involved his own death. It's an absorbing insight into how the will of man and the will of God intersect. In this most godly of men, Jesus, at this most godless of ours. But you know, more than absorbing, way more than absorbing, when we realize that these two, these two things, the plan of God, the voluntary submission of Jesus to that plan, are played out for our benefit as Jesus struggles. Today we are starting a short little series in the lead up to Easter. It's called The Footsteps of the Cross. And we're basically going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus from the time the disciples finished the Last Supper right through to Jesus' death and resurrection. Today we watch Jesus struggle. And firstly for today, in God's sovereign plan, we see Jesus will die and will be betrayed by his disciples. Jesus assuredly predicts his betrayal and his death. And you can see that from the very first part of the reading that was brought to us. I hope you have it open there in front of you, otherwise on the screen, where Jesus said to the disciples, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's the night before Jesus' death and having just celebrated the last supper, At the Jewish festival of Passover, Jesus tells the disciples that they will abandon him. Very interesting for Jesus to say that, don't you think? Especially having just celebrated the Passover with them. What a bittersweet moment that must have been. This very night, you will all betray me. Maybe Judas had already left. John's gospel records Judas is leaving while they were still eating the meal. Maybe you think Jesus is just extrapolating that result. What has happened with that one will happen to them all. You know, maybe Jesus is just thinking, I've got a real bad feeling about this. It's all heading south. But that would be to overlook Jesus' 
own certainty in the sovereign plan of God. And you know, it seems to me that we cannot really have confidence in any of our best laid plans, can we? We dream dreams, we make plans, but something usually gets in the way. We save up for a deposit, but house prices just keep on rising. We train for a half marathon, we pull a hammy a few weeks out. We work hard to close the deal, but then the client gets cold feet or the market dips. We toilet train the kids, but at the most inopportune, inappropriate and embarrassing moment, he has an accident. Because it's always the boys, isn't it? I reckon um, nothing, though, shows us how our plans fail more than overseas travel. We lived in uh, England for a little bit, and uh, my very first day of like an overseas trip started off in less than amazing fashion. We planned to make it to the airport with plenty of time, but the train to the airport was running late, and we almost missed our flight, which is stressful if you have non-refundable tickets. But the flight was delayed, which was good, but it was delayed four hours, which was really bad because it put us half a day behind this planned itinerary. And so the next day, we planned to travel by train from Rome down to Naples, which you would have thought was straightforward enough, but not in Italy. So we're on the right train, but about three quarters of the way there, it just stops for no good reason, as far as we could tell. It wasn't moving. None of the Italians on the train were moving. Nobody spoke or understood English, so we had no idea what was going on. And then an announcement was made through the PA. We still had no idea what was going on, so we followed the crowd off the train, out of the station, onto a dusty patch of dirt, which I think functioned as a bus station, and then onto a stifling and crowded bus filled with Italian workers at the end of the working day, choking with the fumes. My face was this close to an Italian lady and I could see the nits in her hair moving in her hair. And I still had no idea where this bus was going. Apparently the students from Naples were rioting and the trains couldn't get through. And I thought, of course they're rioting. But I don't blame Italy, right? That's just our best laid plans, isn't it? You can't have confidence, even in our best laid plans. And yet Jesus here speaks with remarkable certainty, doesn't he? about his death and his betrayal. And he's certain, not just because he knows that things tend to work out badly, rather he can see that his betrayal and his death are part of the sovereign plan of God. You know that in this 26th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, it is at least the fourth time that Jesus has predicted his death and his subsequent resurrection. Even more so, he sees it as a fulfillment of Zechariah 13. Have a look at that verse, For it is written, It is written in Zechariah 13 in the Old Testament. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It's all part of God's sovereign plan, Jesus is saying. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, God pitches a day when because of the rebellion amongst his people, a shepherd who is close to him will be struck down and the sheep will be scattered. It's a metaphor. And in Zechariah chapter 13, God ultimately takes those sheep, which of course are his people, And he purifies them and he turns them into the renewed people of God. And Jesus looks at what is about to unfold before him and he can all say it's all part of that plan. It's been written about hundreds of years earlier. And he's so sure of his own resurrection and afterwards that he can say, I'm going to meet you boys in Galilee, it says in verse 32. In other words, they won't return to their homes in Galilee in the north, despondent, that Jesus was dead 
in a Judean grave in the south. He would be ahead of them in Galilee. There's a remarkable certainty in God's sovereignty. <laughs> but of course the disciples, right, led by Peter, all they can hear is Jesus predicting their denials. And, and typically Peter responds emotionally to this slur against his loyalty and he pledges his undying allegiance to Jesus. Have a look at verse 35. Even to the exclusion of all the other disciples, even if he has to die with Jesus. And his bravado really just adds a sad note to his upcoming betrayal. As you suspect, Peter really wants to be loyal. Uh, apparently, I didn't know this, apparently the crowing of cockerels, roosters, it was very common in that part of the world at the hours of midnight and one o'clock and two o'clock in the morning. So much so that the Romans called the midnight to 3am shift, they called it the cock crow. And in response to Peter's repeated pledges, Jesus effectively says, in a matter of hours, mate, you're going to betray me. That bird is going to squawk and then you'll know. He speaks with certainty and it is both a desperate torment for Jesus or for Peter really and a sad certainty for Jesus. But according to the sovereign plan of God Jesus will be betrayed by those closest to him and then he will die. Secondly for today though we see Jesus as the true human who struggles with obedience and ultimately submits himself to God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus struggles as any human would, but ultimately he obeys God. We pick up the story in verse 30, uh, 36. Hope your Bibles are open in front of you. And Jesus has walked to Gethsemane. It's a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. The name Gethsemane literally means oil press. Got a picture of it here. And he's with his inner circle of three, Peter. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, because you see, even Jesus had his favorites and he went there to pray. And I wonder if you can just feel the sheer kind of heaviness of that occasion. Just the solid and dense weight of the scene that is playing out of the night overall. As Matthew records Jesus becoming sorrowful and troubled in verse 37. And then recording Jesus' own burdensome words in verse 38. My soul, it's overwhelmed to the point of death. And then Jesus going just a little bit further and falling prostrate in despair. Now, if you can sense the gravity and the burden and the weight of that scene, have you ever asked yourself the question, why doesn't he face it more bravely? I mean, there were other Jews at this time, it's well known, uh, recorded in history, other Jews at the time who faced crucifixion with way more valor. Thousands of martyrs of different faiths and of no faith, have faced their own death with, can I say, greater honour and dignity than Jesus appears to have here? I reckon we can even look at Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran, and they seem far more consenting at ease with their own pending death. Why the theatrics with Jesus? It's a good question to ask. And the answer is in Jesus' words in verse 39, which is perhaps the key verse in this whole chapter. My father, he says, praying to God, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
key verse, verse 39, we see Jesus battle with obedience to the Father's plan. And though the emotion is so raw, overwhelmed to the point of death he is, falling face down on the ground, it's not mere histrionics. He's, he's not some sort of Middle Eastern drama queen. And the clue to it all is his mention of a cup. If it is possible, take this cup from me. You see, the cup is not a cup of olive oil, as you might expect, at a place called the Mount of Olives, in a garden whose name means oil press. It's not a cup of wine or a cup of water either. It's an Old Testament allusion to suffering and to death, and more importantly, to the wrath of God. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah says this in, verse, in chapter 51. Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. It's not about to die as a mere martyr or just to protect the message of God or even as an example of sacrificial love. He is about to absorb the full wrath of God that is due upon us as sinful people for us in order that we might be spared that same fate. As he has just celebrated the Passover with his disciples, he is about to become the Passover lamb. Not a meaningless sacrifice, but a sacrifice that brings the full and righteous judgment upon, of God upon himself. He will pay the ransom price that is required in order to redeem us or free us from our sins with nothing less than his own life. And more, way more than just excruciating physical suffering, he will experience hell. That is of God's just but awful judgment poured out upon him, though he had committed no sin himself. And having an eternal relationship between father and son severed on the cross as the father turns his face away, forsaking his son. In short, Jesus is about to experience hell on behalf of people, you and I included, who deserve nothing short of hell so that we might be spared hell. And I cannot imagine the dread that Jesus must have felt there in the garden, perhaps even as he experienced the very first glimpse of being forsaken by God, being rejected by God right there in the garden. I cannot imagine the dread. But I'm dead sure that he wasn't relishing the drama, hamming it up for history, putting it all on. Every kid, every child struggles to obey his parents from time to time at least, don't you think? All the parents are going, yes, not just time to time. It's like all the time, man. <laughs> My oldest son, James, he's a really good boy. He's 12 now and uh, he's got a gentle spirit. He's got a real kind heart. He wants to do the right thing and he causes us very little trouble. And he's quick to make amends when he's done something wrong, which is unlike his brother's. And uh, unlike me. But I do remember a time when he was carrying on like a right pork chop in the St. Ives Village Shopping Centre, which is possibly the most boring shopping centre in the entire universe. Like, its greatest claim to fame is that it is the only carpeted shopping centre in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> it's a crazy place. And uh, we were there, and uh, there was this point where, as a parent, you've tried asking politely, and then you've tried speaking very firmly. 
and then you've tried bribing them, and then you've threatened to spend all their inheritance driving a Winnebago around the Australian continent again and again and again, and all that doesn't work, and you realise you've just got to grab them and leave. And I do remember once just grabbing him off the aforementioned carpeted floors, holding him upside down by one of his legs like a sack of potatoes, and I was calmly travelling up the escalators, and he thought it was a bit of a game, but there were these proper St Ives ladies that were looking at me horrified as I carried him up the escalators, and I was just like, what? What are you looking at? as though it was the most natural thing in the world. <laughs> and uh, you may have been the parent in that situation. Dead certain you've been that kid at least once in your life. Because it's common, isn't it, in human relationships, for children to struggle with obedience, for a son to wrestle with the thought of obeying his father. And so understanding that at the human level just gives us a, an inkling of Jesus' struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is a a treasured relationship between father and son that's on view. And there's a desperate choice to make, to obey, to submit, to go with the plan that he has confidently spoken of so recently. And though he has glimpsed what lies ahead, in verse 39, he overcomes that struggle with obedience, with these words, yet not as I will, but as you will. You know the history of the world, our eternal salvation that was planned before the creation of the world was sealed with those very few words, yet not as I will, but as you will. Perhaps through prayer and meditation, the aid of the Holy Spirit, very interestingly, the same things that are available to us in our daily Christian lives, Jesus concludes, there is no other way for the people God so loves to be spared hell unless he undergoes it himself on their behalf. Was not possible for the cup of God's wrath to be taken away from Jesus if we were to have a chance of life with him. It was not possible for sinners like us to be saved if Jesus' life was saved. And so he determines to submit himself to the plan of God. It's very important for us to see that Jesus here is not the blind victim of faith but that he is a voluntary sacrifice, yet not as I will, but as you will. Of course, Jesus' battle and resoluteness is contrasted with the complete inability of the disciples to watch and pray. Uh, In your Bibles there, verse 42, Jesus prays, your will be done. And then he says the same thing for a third time in verse 44. But on three occasions, the disciples are found wanting, verse 40, verse 43, verse 45, sleeping rather than watching and praying. Ah, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter pledges his undying allegiance to Jesus, but within hours he denies him three times. The disciples are asked to watch and pray three times. They fall asleep. And in one sense, we don't really blame them, do we? Maybe that's part of the point. They actually represent us. That great gap between their best intentions and their inability to follow through is as wide as the gap between our best intentions and our inability to follow through. I mean, Jesus struggles and he prevails. The disciples struggle just a little And their weakness is clear, just as our weakness is all too clear in our own minds if we're honest with ourselves. 
There's just a disconnect, isn't there, between the noble desires of the human will and our actual ability to carry it out. And three times that is contrasted with Jesus' resolution to carry out his Father's will at the cost of his own life. And what does all this mean for us? The gospel, God's great plan of salvation, which climaxes here in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is a wonderful plan because it results in our salvation. But can you see it's a necessary plan? Because there is just a gap. I mean, it's a chasm really, isn't it? Between our best intentions and our ability to follow through. And I think we all know this deep down in the depths of our souls, don't we? Even if you're here this morning, someone who does not yet believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, in our place, for our sins, isn't that part of the reason that you are here with us this morning? You just sense that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, we all do. And that is a message you might need to hear if you're the kind of person who thinks, oh, it's all up to me, everything hangs on my actions, I can change the world. You know, in the most important feature of our life, that's our eternal destiny, it isn't up to us at all. Our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. There's just that gap. And that's precisely the experience of the disciples. Despite Peter's pledges of allegiance, he betrays Jesus within hours. Despite Jesus' simple request to watch and pray, they let him down not once but three times. The gap between our best intentions, our loudest protestations of loyalty and what we can actually do should warn us against any kind of pride. And it should drive us humbly to the feet of Jesus, the one human for whom there was no gap between the best of intentions and the ability to follow through on them. In the most important thing, that is salvation before God, wasn't up to us, it was up to Jesus. And he was both willing and able to carry out the will of God on the basis of his actions, his decision, his submission, he changed the world forevermore. And that is one of the reasons why we call the gospel of Jesus good news, because it is so wonderful and we would be so bereft without it. But for those of us who think that our actions make little difference, this passage has got a strong challenge. For those who think we're just robots, our decisions aren't genuine decisions, and that our choices make no real difference in the big scheme of things, this passage says, nah, no way. Your choices are real choices. Your decisions count. Watch and pray so that you too can say, not my will be done, but yours, O God. In Jesus' true humanity in this passage, we see that his decisions and his actions count, even as he struggles to be obedient to the plan of God. And I know it's not exactly the same because none of us are asked to be voluntary sacrifices to take the righteous judgment of God upon ourselves. But our decisions and actions still count because this passage shows us a pattern of true humanity where a man in a garden says to God, your way, not mine, rather than the other way around, my way, not yours. An attitude which has always been at the heart of sin 
since the first humans rebelled against God. You remember in that first garden in Eden, not your will but mine changed paradise into a desert. It brought humanity on a bruising journey to this garden, Gethsemane. And now, the reverse words. Not my will, but yours. It brings anguish to the man who prays it. But it transforms this desert life into the kingdom of God. And it brings humanity face to face with God almost. Almost to the gates of the glory to come. And so in this time between now... And the glory to come, where we will see Jesus face to face. The Christian response, whenever we hear God speak to us through the scriptures and we're tempted to dismiss it, to reject it, to ignore it, or to critique it, the Christian response is to say, yet not as I will, but as you will. That's the motto of true discipleship. It is patterned after Jesus, the truest human who ever lived, what Adam what the disciples, what we should have been, but just aren't. I wonder this morning, is it pride or greed or lust that God is asking you to shed? Will it be your will or his will? Maybe this morning, He's asking you for faithfulness or generosity or gentleness or truthfulness. Will it be your will or his will that's done? As we finish up, the spirit is willing. But the flesh is so often weak, isn't it? And that is true and that is worth remembering especially for all those overly can-do people among us. But because Jesus said, yet not as I will, but as you will, he proved himself to be the truest human who ever lived, and he opened up the gates so that we might be in eternal fellowship and friendship with God. But those words also become the motto for all those who would follow him in the very footsteps of the cross. Let's pray to him now. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this little account in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is, uh, you know, we sense the heaviness of the occasion. Uh, We sense our own inability, like the disciples were unable to follow through on their best intentions. And Lord, we see just the great resoluteness and obedience of Jesus, who submitted himself to your will and plan that even cost him his own life. And Lord, we're thankful for that and we recognize that we are the beneficiaries of that because our spirits are willing and yet our flesh is weak. And yet, Lord, for those of us who are your people, brothers and sisters here, I pray that you would help us to adopt those words, yet not as I will, but as you will, as the motto for our Christian lives. For the glory of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.